This program is brought to you by Haymarket Books as part of our live event series. Haymarket Books is a radical, independent publisher dedicated to connecting social movements with the ideas they need in the struggle for a better world. You can help support the Haymarket Project by buying books at haymarketbooks.org and especially by joining the Haymarket Book Club. Be sure to subscribe to our podcast and the Haymarket YouTube channel to access all of our upcoming events. Welcome, everyone. Uh, It's really a delight to have you on board today for what I promise you is going to be a a really exciting, informative, provocative panel as we address the theme, No Human is Illegal. We've got an amazing lineup of panelists, and I'll be introducing them to you in in a moment. Uh, First, myself, uh, I'm David McNally. I'm an editor of Spectre Journal, and along with our partners for this event, Haymarket Books, I want to welcome you to our discussion today. Spectre Journal has been trying to address a whole series of issues of vital urgency to the left. And there can be little doubt that migration, borders, and migrant justice must be in in the forefront of these debates and and discussions. To this end, we hope that events like this will contribute to broader political, theoretical, and strategic discussions across the left. And we've brought together really an all-star cast of scholar activists, some of the people I literally most respect who are writing uh, and working on these issues. Uh, What we'll be doing is having about 10 minutes of comments from each of our panelists. Then I will be directing some questions to them and we'll follow that up by through the chat, taking some questions from all of you, which I will be directing to them for the event today. We have Justin Aker Chacon. We have Nandita Sharma and we have Vanessa Wills. I'll be introducing them in that order and I will give you a little bit of background about each of them as we run through the panel. So we'll be going in the order that I said, Justin, Nandita and Vanessa. So Tijuana border region, he is illegal along the U.S. Thank you to Spectre. where we're at with policy over the last 50 years. It's driving regional economic, we're well-established historical process for capital for reinvestment to a surplus value. To, you know, break the role of, you know, call it as the new of the region to, you know, it's just regimes, these directive. Uh, in Mexico, we saw uh, and, the, and the, the form of capitalism that was being um, national uh, state managed capitalism this also came into the with capitalist crisis with the united states beginning the uh, through um the the sort of ages of the of the crisis in mexico in the national monetary fund the world bank and you directly by us bankers and financiers the capitalist class in mexico was restricted developed uh, a very uh, sort of independent um, role in the of the Mexican economy through 
the implementation of what we refer to as free trade policies, specifically between 1982 and 1994. So this this uh, this type of government, which we can talk about if people have questions uh, about it in the in the discussion. Uh, this radical reorganization of the Mexican economy uh, led to the displacement. Welcome back, everyone. Uh, you will have noticed that even given the technological wonders of late capitalism, we <laughs> still have issues like this. On the other hand, thanks to the amazing wizardry of our partners at Haymarket Books, they have migrated us to another server. Thank you, John and Mandy. It's uh, amazing to have you working with us. And for those of you who were paying attention. We unfortunately had an interruption to Justin's remarks, but I know that the outline he was giving you is fresh in your heads right now. So Justin, we're dying to hear you close this out. Okay, so thank you. So uh, as I was saying, um, just to quickly uh, summarize, the transition to open markets in Mexico um, facilitated by a collaboration between U.S. capital and rising Mexican capital, eager to shake off the residue of the sort of nationalist state-managed capitalism that had existed, uh, led to a radical reorganization of, of Mexico's economy um, that included um, you know, through the debt that Mexico incurred through the through the process of restructuring, it included opening up Mexico's economy to uh, U.S. and foreign capitals, virtual recolonization of, of much of the economy, uh, the transfer of massive wealth out of Mexico. And um, as we're going to see across Latin America over this period of time, increasing st uh, state violence to to underpin this new this new market model. And the consequence uh, in Mexico, for instance, was immense. So we see. Between 1994 and 2007, we see about 7 million people being uh, displaced uh, internally uh, and crossing the border, along with millions who are displaced internally and staying within Mexico. Uh, and we see a lot of, you know, that, that, that's a way of understanding the, the driving for, you know, how, how this model of capitalism uh, has been driving migration ever since. This model was further exported into Central America, the Caribbean, and parts of South America. And so, in a way, it helps us understand one of the contributing factors to the to the conflicts of the last three decades in Latin America, uh, whether it be the Zapatista uprising uh, of 1994, the global justice movement, the social movements in Argentina across the region, the rise of uh, Hugo Chavez, the water wars in Bolivia uh, that brought the Movimiento Socialismo to power. The, the debt crises that produced the Argentine revolt of 2001, the Chilean uprising, the Ecuadorian revolts, uh, and on and on. So opening of borders for capital, uh, on the other hand, in the region was followed by the militarization of borders for migrants. And uh, since this model was exported in 2005, six uh, in Central America and the, and the Caribbean, and then ever since then throughout the region, We've seen uh, that's been uh, a factor of driving other migrations uh, throughout the region and into the United States, but they face militarized borders. The U.S. border enforcement regime, which I refer to in my new book as the Migra State, refers to the rapid reorganization and expansion of policing and militarization through this concept of border security, securitization, and the, and the construction of the criminal migrant. Um, it's 
well documented how the bipartisan state in the United States has allocated billions of dollars towards the construction of the border wall and the virtual wall, the extension of uh, the border border patrol and ICE into every sector of the of the country, every state uh, of the U.S. Uh, the growth of the migrant carceral system, et cetera. So this migrant uh, migra state um, is is the opposite of open border. You know, open borders for capital, closed criminal and closed borders and criminalization for migrants, refugees, and displaced people. What is less understood about this process, and which I really focus on uh, in my book, and I want to want to try to summarize here, is how the architecture of repression serves in the interest of capitalism, not just in terms of the industries of repression that it creates. But the way that it has maintained now for decades a large, very productive, uh, segregated segment of the working class through the legal construction and maintenance of the non-citizen workers. Um, and in my new book, I also document how the wages of transnational workers uh, have plummeted. So, so migrant workers have plummeted in relationship to the wages of citizens in proportion to the criminalization of their labor. So in other words, wages to be similar for U.S. born and and, and cross-border workers, but as the MIGRA state develops, as repression develops, wages begin to differentiate significantly. Um, and this is at the time that um, migrant labor has become even more productive. Uh, and so the overall process is lowering all wages of all workers through repression. And furthermore, this repression is maintained through, uh, you know, uh, ICE terror, you know, the the way in which ICE functions as a, a kind of labor police across the country, uh, arresting and deporting workers who form unions, who speak out, who who even try to move from state to state or city to city looking for better work. They become uh, subject to uh, to being arrested. So um, so so this is a function of capitalism. Um, and we can talk about that more in the discussion. But I want to move to my last point, um, which is. Um, why borders, why repression, you know, are the norm normalized and why um, immigration reform or meaningful amnesty is, is really not is no longer something being put forth by either by, by the Democrats, by any section of the uh, of the ruling class, by the capitalist class, because of the of the, the integration of criminal repression as a function of capital accumulation. Um, and so uh, after the economic crisis of 2007 uh, to 2009, for instance, um, you know, with and with the eight years of the Obama Biden um, uh, presidency, um, even though even though there was uh, the the rhetoric of immigration reform, uh, and even though the Democrats had a uh, you know uh, basically had a uh, a supermajority in the in federal government, and uh, you know in the first two years of the Obama uh, Biden administration, they promised legalization. And they ended up abandoning that altogether um, because the the repression, the machinery of repression had be had become such a function, especially now after another economic crisis. Um, so, so instead of legalization under Obama Biden, we got the further expansion of, of criminalization uh, alongside unprecedented bailouts for for Wall Street. So this was 2007 to 2009. Um, so. So Trump's assumption to office in 2016 occurred out of the wreckage of this process. He literally was claiming he would finish the job that was begun by his predecessors, but not completed. <clears throat> and this is at a time when recession didn't end for most working people in this country. There's been a perpetual 
uh, conditions of, of recession in terms of standard of living wages, et cetera, since the last economic crisis coming into the current one. So um, <clears throat> it's important to point out that the, this model has in many ways gone international, this model of migrant repression adapted to the conditions of different capitalist countries, but it helps explain why we see the intensification of walls uh, and or, you know, the, the development of walls and intensification of repression now on an international scale. In fact, um, with the debt process, which I briefly explained in Mexico and how that opened the door for the implementation or imposition really of these free trade policies, uh, we see this now being internationalized with many formerly poor and formerly colonized countries around the world. About 90 countries now are, are dependent on IMF loans uh, to sustain their, their economies. Um, and between 2010, the end of the last crisis, and 2020, uh, you know, last year, the onset of the, of, the, of the current crisis, 50 more million people have been uh, displaced from within their own countries, adding to the number, uh, adding to, you know, uh, up to about 300 million people now living outside their territorial boundaries. And we're going to see the ranks of the global transnational poor displaced and working classes rise in the year to come, alongside the rise of the extreme right political parties that are attempting to deflect the angler of people towards this, the capitalist system that is causing this uh, prolonged misery and towards migrants and refugees uh, through these parties, you know, uh, calling for more border controls and more repression. So my last point is, is to, to then just emphasize two elements that have emerged out of this process. One that we're very familiar with, a resurgent far, far right and fascist movements across the globe that have been cultivated and emboldened by the twin, uh, you know, the the the, the crisis, the two crises of capitalism that that we've lived through in the last decade, and the increasing embrace by ruling classes uh, and their parties of migrant criminalization policies to deflect from its role, from its role, the role of the ruling classes and the role of of capitalism in in driving these crises. Uh, on the other hand, we've seen new left forces and new sectors of the working classes. Looking now at the United States, often working classes led by migrant workers themselves who have taken active opposition to oppose repressive policies, border walls and criminalization, um, especially in the United States as opposition to the repression of immigrants is existentially interconnected with the rebuilding of a vital labor uh, and union movement in the United States. And so we've seen mass movements of immigrant workers uh, with the support of labor back in the in the 1980s, uh, pushing for an amnesty in 1986, uh, that you know is a model for how uh, we could have policies that that how we could how we could realize policies that give immediate citizenship to people without prolonged decades long requirements that they work et cetera as non citizens in order to earn the right what they call a path to citizenship. We've seen in 2006. A uh, mass strike of immigrant workers and their supporters calling for legalization again, uh, while not getting it, contributing to the election of Democrats who promised they would provide it. But nevertheless, that mass mobilization killing uh, the most vile uh, attempt at immigration criminalization in the form of the Sensenbrenner King Bill of 2005. We've seen the growth of a new socialist left merging with fragments of the of the previous immigrant waves of immigrant rights movements and pointing together um, and we've seen expressions of that play out in the occupy ice mobilizations of 2018 where people protested against ice across the country including blockades 
uh, against people being deported. We've seen transnational strikes happening in the same industry, often for the same employers or, you know, uh, within the same in, uh, industries in, in agriculture and auto, raising the possibility for workers to to formulate demands on both sides of the border, on all sides of the border, um, let, laying the possibility for, for you know, um, common action and in the possibility for, for unionization across board, the borders. And the last example is we saw in 2019 during the budget showdown uh, between Trump and Congress, the impasse over, you know, the, the question of funding the expansion of Trump's border wall, the threat of strikes across the airline industry led by the flight attendants threatening to shut down the whole airline industry if Trump didn't back off his his demand for border wall funding. Uh, that threat led him capitulating and ultimately killed his signature campaign promise to exp expand the border, expand the border wall. And that was that was very popular in the in the general U.S. population to oppose that uh, the, the expansion of the border wall and and. Uh, in Trump's plan. So these are some of the highlights. Uh, we have a lot of work to do, but the outline for a world without borders is being drawn. The social forces necessary to advance that struggle are showing the way. And so this gives us a glimpse of, of, of where, where things could go, but we have to commit ourselves you know, to the struggle and, um, and, and be part of the solution in the years to come, especially as we see the battle over immigration being fought out once again um, you know, in, into the first months of the of the Biden administration. Thank you. Thank you so much, Justin, for getting us started. And uh, I look forward to coming back to a whole number of the themes that you've you've raised, both with our next two speakers and, of course, in the discussion period. Uh, next, I'm delighted to introduce Nandita Sharma. Nandita teaches sociology at the University of Hawaii and is the author of Home Economics, Nationalism and the Making of Migrant Workers in Canada, and most recently of Home Rule, National Sovereignty and the Separation of Natives and Migrants. And I should add that there is a stunning interview with Nandita about her latest book in Spectre Issue 1. So those of you who haven't gotten around to taking out your subscriptions uh, yet, you'd better because this is the sort of thing you're going to be missing otherwise. Uh, welcome, Nandita. Thanks very much, David, um, and thank you to Spectre Journal as well as to Haymarket Books, and thank you to Justin for that great um, start to our conversation. Um, I've been working in the movement for No Borders since the start of the 21st century, right? So a couple of decades now. And once, you know, we were completely scorned as ridiculous, utopic, even naive, dangerous. Um, but now we see that the call for no borders is actually being increasingly articulated around the world in no small part because of the, you know, rapid uh, uh, intensification of a world in global lockdown, right? A global, a world in global lockdown is the reason we have a no borders movement today and the re need, the reason we need to continue to build it. So no borders I think really is a critical part of the incomplete, unfinished struggle for freedom. You know, our freedom to move is critical to all of our other freedoms, right? It's a critical part of the anti-capitalist movement. It's a critical part of the anti-state movement. Um, so I wanted to talk about both 
how every single thing about the way our world is organized is based on the negation of our freedom to move. You know, so I'll start with state controls on on our freedom to move, uh, states and mobility controls. Now, all states throughout history have tried to control people's mobility. You know, that's one of the definitions of the state. You know, the one of the kind of origins of the word state comes from stasis. States are very, very interested in keeping people stuck, in, in keeping people contained within their territories. Um, so destroying people's freedom of movement is a definitional, definitional part of being a state. Um, however, not all states control people's mobility in the same way. And I think that that's really crucial for us to pay attention to. Imperial states, for instance, you know, were very, very interested in controlling people's mobility, but they were mostly uh, interested in exit controls, in preventing people from fleeing uh, the territories that they controlled, right? Fleeing the state control. Nation states have basically flipped that on its head. Most nation states today allow their citizens to leave, um, although, you know, and we still we have now come to define a kind of totalitarian system by its you know, refusal to allow people to move. So generally, nation states are not interested in exit controls, but they are vehemently interested in entry control. So imperial states were not that interested in preventing people from coming into their territory. Indeed, imperial states try to get as many people into their territories as possible, right? Either by expanding their territorial control or by forcing people into their territories. For instance, the Atlant you know, the system of Atlantic slavery was a was a significant part of that. Um, so nation states and entry controls is the world that we live in now, right? We live in a global system of nation states, right? We ha and we have been basically since the end of World War II, as imperial states um, dropped off the map and their territories were largely replaced both in the former colonies and in the former metropoles by nation states, right? Uh, nationally independent states. Um, and what we saw is that as every new nation state came into being, right, uh, the state of India, the state of, you know, um, uh, Israel, the state, you know, on and on, right, there's just um, Ghana, et cetera, all these states across Asia, Africa, um, immigration, you know, enacting immigration and citizenship controls was part of how these new independent states announced themselves um, as nation states on the world stage. So citizenship and immigration controls were absolutely crucial and are absolutely crucial to the form of state power that we have right now. Um, and the reason for that is in part what Justin very powerfully reminded us of, right, that immigration controls help to cheapen and weaken the labor power of people who are given inferior immigration statuses, right? Who are denied permanent residency, who are denied citizenship status. They come to occupy a very, very um, precarious form of, of labor inside nation states. And, and non-citizens live inside every single nation state, right? There's no nation state in the world that only has its quote unquote members of the nation within it. All nation states 
you know, have enacted citizenship and immigration policies, all nation states the world over also use that uh, immigration status to manipulate their nationalized labor markets. Um, and all of them use deportation as a threat uh, to uh, ensure the discipline of that labor. Um, but nationalism, you know, does other work as well. It's and it's, you know, completely tied to the work that it does for capital labor markets, capitalist labor markets. Nationalism also produces the nation, right? It produces the nation as the only legitimate basis for political power. And unfortunately, across the political spectrum, obviously, the far right is always nationalist. Uh, but increasingly, so is the left, right? Or, you know, parts of the left have been nationalists for some time. So I'd really like to use this conversation as an opportunity to really have us question how um, wedded we are to this, to the basis of the political power of the nation state, right? Which is our identification as nationals, right? As members of one or another nation. The kind of unity that all nationalists demand, right, whether it's Joe Biden or whether it's, uh, you know, um, you know, people much further to the left of Joe Biden, the kind of unity that nationalisms produce always depend on class collaboration, right? They're, the only kind of unity that is possible in a nation, in a nation state, is some kind of class collaboration between workers and capital, right? The belief that somehow you know, in, in the territories of whatever nation state we're talking about, there's some kind of unity between the workers there and the capital there. And they're all lined up against, you know, the workers in the capital of somewhere else. But, you know, despite all evidence to the contrary, um, and despite nationalist exhortations that workers and capitals are always supposedly united in the national project, what we see is a very, very different world, right? What we see is a world where nationalism is being used to usher in even more um, precarious forms of, you know, precarious experiences of capitalist labor markets within nation states. And of course, um, you know, the growing deaths that we are seeing as people attempt to leave places that are no longer sustainable for them to places where they hope to make a new life, right? So we, we're living in a world in global lockdown. Immigration controls, um, you know, from the end of World War II, when we kind of shifted into a system from imperial states to nation states, from World War II to today, the level of immigration controls has, you know, it's even, it's even too... Um, small to say that there's been an exponential growth. It's unimaginable looking back from the 1940s, 1950s, 1960s to the world that we have today. Right now, it is basically impossible for the vast majority of people in the world to actually leave where they are, which is increasingly, you know, where most people are in the world today is increasingly unsustainable to their lives, Right. But yet um, immigration controls around the world and especially in the rich world make it impossible for people to move safely. It doesn't mean that they're not moving, but it's impossible for people to move freely. But it's also impossible for people to move safely. Right. So the Mediterranean has become another sea of bones. In addition to the Caribbean, uh, it's become one of the most deadliest places for the, in the world for people on the move. Right. There, you know, there's been you know, over 6,000 pe 
drowned bodies that have actually been recovered in the Mediterranean just in the last three years. Um, the Rio Bravo, the Rio Grande region is another deadly waterway. And then there's the deserts, there's the Sahara, there's the Sonoran. But people are still moving and they will continue to move. And everybody knows that, right? Everybody knows that people are moving more than ever before and that they, they will continue to do so in ever greater numbers. So what's happening in response to a global capitalist system that is making life on this planet impossible for more and more people, for most people, what we're also seeing is a hardening of nationalism all around the world, right? So further restrictions on, you know, further, you know, ever more repressive immigration restrictions depend on further restrictions on our idea of who belongs inside any given nation state, right? So membership in the nation is increasingly being squeezed, right? Being limited. So what we're seeing, what my book Home Rule talks about is a kind of um, emergent nativism that is reliant on literally on the idea of being native to the place that you live, right? So the far right, um, across the world, the far right in Europe, the far right in Asia, the far right in Africa, the far right in the Americas is largely reliant on this idea that they represent the quote unquote native people of the place. Right. We see this. And I want to use the example of what's happening in Myanmar, largely because there was a coup there yesterday. Um, but in Myanmar, prior to the coup, sometimes, you know, when I heard about the coup, I was like, how will anyone know that there's a difference in Myanmar with the coup, right? Under the supposedly democratic regime of Aung San Suu Kyi, we had a genocide, right? There was a genocide of Rohingya people um, in, in Myanmar. Rohingya people were um, castigated by Buddhists, um, by the party of Aung San Suu Kyi, by the military as migrants, as somehow, well, as illegal migrants, as not native to Myanmar, right, formerly Burma, even though, you know, they have actually lived there for, you know, some um, archaeologists and anthropologists argue for longer than the people who imagine themselves as native to Burma or Myanmar, right? But the Rohingya were persecuted, they were they were rounded up, put in concentration camps, their homes were burned, their businesses were looted, um, and they were forced to flee. So that right now there's over a million Rohingya people living in Bangladesh in the world's largest um, uh, refugee camps, also known as concentration camps, contemporary con concentration camps. And, you know, the government of Bangladesh has built an, a separate detention center on a human-made island in the middle of the Bengal Sea to place the Rohingya people in, right? And so yesterday there was a coup in Myanmar. So what the what we're seeing with a world in global lockdown, like a, a world, a, a globe ruled by capital that is making life unsustainable, a world in global lockdown where nationalists say that the only way that they can protect themselves from the ravages that we're witnessing is through recourse to nationalism. We see that a world in global lockdown is really only possible with a fascist regimes, with fascist regimes everywhere in the world. I don't think it's a coincidence that the massive persecution of Rohingya in Myanmar and a coup in Myanmar yesterday 
uh, are are coincidental, right? It laid the groundwork for an authoritarian genocidal regime, and that is precisely what people in Myanmar, many of whom supported the genocide in Rohingya of the Rohingya, are now experiencing, right? So a world in global lockdown pushes us towards fascist solutions, right? How do you keep people contained in that way? How do you separate people based on whether they're native or migrant in that way? You need kind of authoritarian fascist regimes. So when I say that no borders is a crucial part of the incomplete and unfinished struggle for freedom, what I'm also saying is that to live in a world of freedom that, you know, we're all striving for, we're all struggling for, we, of course, we need to reject global capitalism, but we also need to reject the nationalisms that we have been told are a, counterpo- are a counterpoint to global capitalism. The argument that I'd like to make for no borders is that nationalism and the border controls that come with it are an integral part of how global capitalism actually operates, right? Nation states are an integral part of the expansion and the intensification of global capitalist social relationships. So if we want a world with no borders, if we want a world of freedom, we also need a world without nations and without nation states. So I'll leave it there. Thank you. Thank you so much, Nandita, and I look forward to returning to so many of those points that you've made. Uh, It is now very much my pleasure to introduce Vanessa Wills. Vanessa is an assistant professor of philosophy at the George Washington University. She specializes in moral, social, and political philosophy, 19th century German philosophy, especially Karl Marx, she says, and the philosophy of race. Vanessa is uh, an editor of Spectre. And again, for those of you who didn't get a chance to see it, uh, I cannot too highly recommend her really uh, pathbreaking piece on Marxism and white privilege in Spectre issue one. So, Vanessa, over to you. Great. Thank you for that. And uh, the first thing to say is I just couldn't agree more with the, you know, really uh, beautifully piercing analyses that we've heard so far. And my comments are speaking uh, uh, with a focus on the current situation in the United States. And I think dovetail nicely um, with the perspectives that have already been offered. Um, So, When we think about the border in the United States, one among many important roles that the border plays and a role that is often under discussed and I think uh, under theorized as well, is the role that the border plays as a kind of legal apparatus in governing who does and doesn't have civil civil liberties protected um, and what that means for the way that the criminal justice system functions within the United States. Uh, So one recent event that has been a a cause to pay particular attention to this um, is thinking about the uh, federal government response under Trump to the uh, uh, Black Lives Matter protests that uh, that unfolded throughout the United States uh, in the spring and summer uh, of 2020. 
Um, so one of the things that was striking about Trump's response to that was, of course, the use of border police to confront these protesters and to uh, police them and dominate and use force in ways that went beyond uh, what he was uh, able to um, implement uh, other uh, parts of the legal uh, law enforcement apparatus in the United States to do. So why the border police, right? Why did the border police play this kind of particular role? Um, and it matters, of course, when we think about, you know, where these forces uh, emanate from, right? When we think about the whole context of the Department of Homeland Security, um, and when we think back, you know, to the, the uh, Patriot Act and the initiation of the War on Terror, right? And the way that the War on Terror was invoked and has continued to be invoked as a way to justify the stripping of civil liberties from broader and broader swaths of people, uh, with the kind of leading edge of that being the, uh, the the United States treatment of people who are considered non-citizens, right? Now, of course, uh, the folks who were active in the Black Lives Matter protests were, you know, by and large, American citizens. But this is uh, where this the role of the border, both as a legal apparatus and as a kind of ideological tool, uh, plays in, right? Um, because the invocation of... Um, the notion of terror and of the use of the border police, it, it went hand in hand with a uh, framing of the protesters as outside agitators, uh, people who are threats, for, external threats who are coming in and causing trouble uh, in the populace that wouldn't be there otherwise. Uh, so the border police, uh, they're trained uh, in, in practices that violate human rights, um, that, of course, as, as I've said already, regularly uh, treat people without even the sort of, uh, you know, minimal nominal protections that a person gets if they are considered a U.S. citizen uh, within the U.S. Uh, criminal justice system. Uh, but... Um, there's also another way that this notion of the border plays out when we think about the war on terror, and that is the distinction between uh, so-called domestic terrorism and foreign terrorism, right? And these are designations uh, that are uh, used by the uh, United States government to, um, to, to label and categorize what they see as different kinds of threats, right? Uh, so um, one of the things that was uh, uh, noticed that has been studied, um, the legal scholar Sharon Sinar is one of the uh, people who's, who uh, did a great deal of uh, research to, uh, to name this. Um, we know that uh, people who are Muslims, for example, are disproportionately branded international terrorists, even if they're United States citizens, whereas a non-Muslim white engaged in the exact same activities is labeled uh, is more likely to be labeled a domestic terrorist. Um, so why does that designation matter? Well, even as a U.S. citizen, if you're labeled a domestic terrorist rather than an international terrorist, 
terrorist, um, you retain more of your civil liberties, right? So we we have um, this policy, these set this set of policy shifts coming from Biden, right? This this new administration that is positioning itself as pushing back against some of the policies of Trump, right? Especially with respect to immigration and with respect to the border. Uh, and some of the changes that we see, of course, are, you know, at least on their face, you know, quite positive. But I think it's important to think about the way that, that also is happening hand in hand with a renewed kind of attention to this category of so-called domestic terror, right? Um, so in the aftermath of January 6th, uh, there's been, you know, oftentimes not unreasonably, right, a push to uh, say, well, this is an issue of domestic terror, right? Um, it's clear that those people were engaged in, 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 you know, acts that were designed to use violence in order to achieve a political aim. So on a kind of uh, immediate level, right, at first blush, um, it seems quite reasonable. But I think there's a reason for us to be uh, skeptical and concerned about the uh, kind of rhetorical move that's being made to then say, well, the way that we need to respond to the threat that is being posed by these violent white supremacist marauders, right, in the Capitol is to then revise the category of domestic terrorism so that it actually looks more like the uh, the, the way that we already strip uh, people of their civil liberties once they're labeled international terrorists, right? So in other words, there's a kind of... Um, what looks at first um, like uh, a a kind of reasonable response to a you know a genuine threat that's posed um, by uh, the the uh, the sorts of uh, of coup plotters that were involved in January sixth right um, and. Um, what looks like a reasonable statement, well, why is there this this odd distinction, right, between different, you know, if a, if a person is a threat, why are we treating them differently, right? But then that's moving in a direction of bringing more and more people into a category that we can then uh, treat them essentially as non-persons, strip civil liberties, um, and, and treat people however we like. Um, I want to add to that before drawing uh, another kind of lesson out of this, um, that when we look, for example, at the uh, the statements that have come out of the Biden administration, whether it is uh, his description of his program that appears in his campaign platform, you know, or of course uh, the, um, the the policy uh, shifts that have already uh, taken place or that have been announced, um, it's one thing to uh, kind of um, reject some of the most flagrant excesses of a very violent policy toward uh, 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 people who are not U.S. citizens, right? Um, it's another thing to address the uh, the role that the United States plays in 
disrupting and disorganizing and destroying people's lives around the world, right? And creating the conditions that cause people to need to flee. And we see that, for example, in terms of the United States role in Latin America. If we look, for example, at uh, a situation like the, uh, the political situation in Honduras that led to a huge uptick in people emigrating from uh, from Honduras and coming to the United States, uh, and and this is due to, in large part, to um, political changes that were promoted and engendered by the United States uh, in an administration that Biden was vice president of, right? And of course, you know, unsurprisingly, we don't see any kind of recognition of that, right? Or um, pulling back from the from the United States' imperialist uh, uh, activities in other um, parts of the world that then create, you know, the very same unrest uh, and deprivation that causes people to have to leave their homes in order to survive. Uh, so I, I think when we when we look at all of these things together um, and we think about uh, the, the role of the border, right, um, legally, physically as a barrier, right, but legally, um, ideologically and politically um, and think about it in connection with the with the war on terror, with ICE, right, with the role of the Department of Homeland Security. You know, here in the United States, citizens of the U.S. are, are you know, are, are clearly very much encouraged to think of the border as something that makes us safer. And I think it's very clear that the border actually functions centrally in a whole constellation of, of political and, and legal and, and um, police structures that make us significantly less safe than we might otherwise be. One, the, uh, the, the role of the border police in uh, in the Black Lives Matter protests of the summer, I think was one very uh, clear example of that, where to the extent that um, we are encouraged to think that anything is permissible as long as it's done to people who are not U.S. citizens, right? Um, this idea of the citizen and the non-citizen, that plays such an important role in allowing us to look the other way while these apparatuses are constructed that, of course, are first turned against those who are considered non-citizens, but not long after, right, are turned against people who are citizens. And of course, even among people who hold U.S. citizenship, some people are more citizens than others, right? Um, if you are a person of color, um, you are always, you know, more likely to end up on the wrong side of this line, Right. Um, and I think we are in a similar kind of mode in terms of our response now to the uh, the threat that is posed by the rise of far right organizing of the of these violent. Um, uh, uh, right wing, often truly terroristic, right? Um, uh, 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 um, you know. Um, developments that we're seeing. Um, 
there's a there's a similar kind of tendency, you know, I think very similar to what we saw after 9-11, right? We're seeing a kind of repeat where there is a um, a, a desire to uh, see in the state apparatus a, a, a kind of safety, right, that's going to protect us. But that's not the role of, that the state has ever played, right, at least not when it comes to uh, very vulnerable people and we have to be uh, we have to we continue to push back against uh, attempts to, um, to to strip away these civil liberties and uh, and and further um, expand the encroachment of of the state into our lives and into our freedoms and into our ability to continue to organize and do the things that we need to do in order to keep ourselves safe organizing at a grassroots level, including as a response to um, far right uh, uh, organizing that is uh, xenophobic and uh, nationalist and is uh, imperiling immigrants. So uh, thank you for your time. I look forward to the discussions. Thanks so much, Vanessa. Mm -hmm. We do have some questions coming in from the audience, but uh, I was given the opportunity to pose one or two to the panel first. And there's one I'd really like to, to have all of you comment on because one of the themes, even though you all approached it in somewhat different ways, one of the themes that ran through all of your talks was the idea that borders and all of the mechanisms of discipline and repression that come with them, walls, border police, deportations, and so on, that all of this is not just about a specific section of the population, a particular group called migrants, but each and every one of you made the case that this, these have universal or general impacts. You know, Justin, you talked about it in terms of a general pushing down of the wages for all workers. Nandita, you talked about it in terms of a disciplinary mechanism that is used with respect to all workers. And Vanessa, you spoke to it in terms of its impact on everybody's civil rights and brought home to us the use of border police against Black Lives Matter uh, demonstrators, for instance. So I'd like each of you just to take a minute or two and respond on that point, because I think it's often missed in these conversations, the idea that this is a generalized assault even if it's got in the first instance a particular target. So, Justin, let, let's start with you and we'll go through the same order. Yeah, that's a good point um, and good observation. Um, yeah, you know, th this is one of the reasons why I think this kind of presentation and these angles are so important is because in general discourse, it's um, presented, it's, uh, um, it's an issue of, of national security, uh, it's, it's presented as if uh, like the right and even, you know, as Nandita pointed out, sections of the left use nationalist discourse to dis distinguish between the interests of native born workers versus foreign, foreign born workers. Um, you know, and I, and I think it's important to, to sort of hitch this analysis to 
the the capitalist system as a whole and how the capitalist system um you know at, at its very core is based on the exploitation of labor and the means by which labor can be exploited have developed in many different directions in terms of techniques in terms of methodologies in terms of the ideological apparatus of how we justify and how we you know uh, accept some forms of exploitation while rejecting others and so i think it's 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 very crucial that we we do have an uh, a, you know uh, a class analysis um you know of how capitalism and crisis can only persevere through clinging on to new methods for increasing the exploitation um you know, and how those methods shift, right? So, so one thing I was thinking about in terms of uh, my my research and, and the way I've been trying to understand this is, you know, the building up of this apparatus um, is not going to just be voted away, right? It, it can't be voted away because it's the infrastructure of repression of immigrant labor and labor and all of the extensions that other people have talked about is is how capitalism is functioning in this epoch in this period, and and how that um, the, you know, not being able to understand that leads people to have illusions, um, even people on the left to have illusions that we can somehow vote borders out of existence, or we can somehow pass legislation that's going to get people to do the right thing in terms of, of amnesty or legalization or, or dismantling DHS, et cetera. And, you know, the reality is, is that capitalism has its own logic, its own trajectory. And the only thing that is ever that I can, you know, in U.S. history, for instance, the, the great episodes of overturning the apparatus of repression in each epoch, in each distinct period of U.S. capitalism has been rebellion, has been the resistance of the oppressed, whether it be the overthrow of slavery, uh, returning of uh, racial segregation. These previous modes of <laughs> the specific oppressions linked to labor exploitation. And, and in many ways, we have still so much to learn about what that means in our current period, how the organization of the of the of the oppressed and the working classes on a not a national but a international level is key to understanding the next phase of how we overturn the the the, the sort of formation this you know this this grotesque system of oppression that has been developing on its just and, and it won't stop it won't stop you know so I think that's important to understand that and I'll conclude with this point that. Um, you know, I've been around long enough to see people have, you know, allusions through the election cycles. At this time, we're finally going to get what we what we what we've been fighting for. And and now it's come full circle with Biden again. You know, so it's very interesting to actually have to engage on this level. But but I think I think a lot more people are getting that through the struggles that have been developing, especially uh, over the last few years from the immigrant rights movements that have been smashed, rebuilt to the, the you know, the most powerful display of resistance that I've seen in my lifetime in the last year with the Black Lives Matter movement uh, and the growth of, of, an, of a new left and, you know, the, a more, I guess, um, you know, awareness, the growing awareness of our inter, of the international character of the struggle. So I think that um, these things have to be really understood, clarified and organized around, um, you know, so that we can sh so we can kind of build that movement that has the capacity to overturn this uh, the system of, of repression as it's formed under this period of capitalism. Thank you, Justin. Nandita. Yeah, um, I think I, I would answer your question by 
by once again situating the no borders movement within the long historical struggle for freedom, right? I think that's really an important vantage point by which to look at this movement because, you know, ever since um, we have been, you know, ever since people have been forced into class relationships, um, there has been a struggle against it, right? Class relationships and the state are, are like this, right? They come hand in hand. The state arises through the need for a ruling class to institutionalize its power, right? And states control people's freedom to move in order to contain them within class relationships. And the way that, um, you know, class and state rule has won so far, right? Because they have been winning. We've had fantastic, very important movements, and we still do. But they have been winning, and they are winning right now. The way that they have won and continue to win is by separating us from one another, right? And the key mechanisms for separating us historically have been, of course, class. Um, but you know that group of people who work for the ruling class have been divided through patriarchy, right? Dividing men from women was an am amazing. Um, source of power for class and state rule, right? Because it brought that separation into our, you know, most intimate relationships with people, right? With our fathers, with our brothers, with our, you know, perhaps partners, you know, um, separating us through ideas of race have been there for a very, very long time, right? Have always come out of these kinds of class relationships as well. Um, and separating ourselves through ideas of nation is a relatively recent development, arguably, you know, around since the 19th century in a kind of serious political way. Um, and it is now the idea of nationness is really central. Like the, the idea of nation hit nationness has kind of incorporated many of the key attributes of racism. Right. It is very difficult to see any difference between nationalism and racism today. Right. And a key way that nationalism is operating today is by saying that each place in the world, which by which most people mean like national territory. Right. Each national territory in the world is for a particular group of people. Right. They may not they may not call them a race anymore, but they certainly call them a nation. Right. So every nation has its place in the world. And that is actually seen across the left and the right as some kind of natural, even desirable way of living on this planet. Right. So once we get that into our consciousness and once we embed that into our political demands, right, that every play, every people has their place in the world, then, of course, we're going to get anti-immigrant politics. Right. We're going to get a politics that is unable to see a working class that is actually planetary in its scope and has been for hundreds of years. Right. This is nothing new. So to me, like when we when we look at how a demand for no borders is a demand that is important to everyone, not just those, not just those of us who have been classified as migrants, right? A migrant, like that's a relatively recent state category, 
right? It's a state category. It's migrants are those people whose entry into national territory is regulated and restricted. That's a migrant, right? And they're differentiated from citizens who are unrestricted in their entry into, you know, the this territory of their nationality. So to me, the, re- the way that the No Borders movement connects to the larger struggle for freedom is, again, through the, you know, through the old fashioned notion of internationalism. You know, I would I would rephrase internationalism today to call it the struggle for the planetary commons. I think that's more accurate about what we're fighting for, right? We're fighting for a world with no classes, with no state, with freedom of movement, with with the ability for all of us to get our needs and our lives met, the needs, you know, the stuff of life. That's what we need. And we all need that. How do we get it? I think the thing that's standing in our way, of course, is that the systems that we have today have constructed a global apartheid. Right. And in all like all systems of apartheid, we live very close together. Right. The, the people who are benefiting and the people who are li- living uh, in in um, states of objection live close together. They're absolutely inseparable, but they're separated by the law and they're separated by their access to medicine, to education, to housing, et cetera, et cetera. Right. So that's to me the larger political question. Like, how do we. How do we dismantle a system in which some of us are benefiting? So let me just conclude by throwing this statistic out, which is absolutely stunning. Well, two statistics. One is that the bottom 10% uh, of the United States in terms of socioeconomic status, the bottom 10%. And if, if, if you're in the bottom 10%, your life is shit, right? Your life is short and it's shit. Right. And we and it's so I'm not trying to diminish that. But if you're in the bottom 10 percent of the United States, your you know, your life opportunities, your life outcomes are better off than two thirds of the world's population. What does that tell us? Right. That tells us a lot about global apartheid. Right. And, and just what kinds of conditions the vast majority of the people on this planet are living in. And if our movements cannot address how do you undo a global apartheid? You know, I think we can learn from past efforts to undo apartheid. But I think that we need to go further than they have by challenging nationalism and, and by refusing to contain our demands for freedom within some kind of boundary of the nation or national territory. Thank you, Nandita. And Vanessa, on this issue of these struggles as having a universal dimension. Mm Yeah, so I I just want to emphasize, you know, of course, it goes without saying, um, but borders are political. And of course, we all know that, it, you know, it does go without saying, but borders get naturalized in in the in the kind of imagination, right? And in the way that they are uh, discussed um, within political uh, uh, thought, right? And certainly in any kind of political messaging that is made by the, uh, the, the, the people in power of the nation states around which those borders 
lie, right? They're given this kind of almost mystical, eternal uh, meaning, but they are just political and they are worked out in history um, according to what kinds of uh, power struggles take place and how they uh, are resolved. Um, And one of the things that is true Uh, as a consequence of the fact that they are political is that they are extremely fungible and fungible in ways that aren't always obvious. Like, for example, that you don't have to be outside of the border in order to be outside of the border, right? (laughs) You know, that's that's one of the things uh, that is um, uh, uh, distinctive and useful um, for repressive governments about the border. Um, All it takes to place someone out of the side of the border um, is to say that they are now um, an international terrorist and not a domestic one, for example. Their passport might look exactly the same, um, but this one's Muslim, <laughs> right? Um, and, uh, uh, and and that goes, uh, there's, there's also under the Trump administration, and I think it remains to be seen whether this is going to be uh, 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 pushed back on, I think probably not, um, this also goes with uh, respect to the Antifa right label um, that is sort of applied willy-nilly to any left-wing activist. Um, all, all, of course, all it is to be Antifa is to be anti-fascist, right? Um, but uh, it, under Trump, we saw attempts to um, tie anti-fascist activists in the United States to anti-fascists around the world and to then on a model that had already been laid out by the Islamophobia of the war on terror to say, well, these people have international links. So now they too are international terrorists and they're placed outside of the border, right? Legally speaking. Um, And that's very meaningful because, uh, you know, as my co-panelists have, have have beautifully laid out, right, this problem of rising right-wing authoritarianism, the rising threat of fascism. These are global, international uh, threats, and they require global and international responses on the basis of working class collaboration and solidarity. Um, So uh, the project of anti-fascism is inherently international, um, but this is precisely what uh, the, um, the, the law Logic of borders is designed to prevent, right? Um, so, you know, I think it is a it's a project of the international working class to create a world in which people can survive and flourish anywhere on the planet. Uh, we have the liberal notion of human rights, um, which has some very, um, prog- you know, some kind of progressive content, but it can only it only gestures at it. Right. And in fact, it's only really able to um, aspire to such a world at the level of theory and as a kind of ethical aspiration. And of course, you know, it has to also be said that it fairly often actually acts as a reactionary kind of excuse for different kinds of imperialist interventions. Um, But to actually produce a world where it's not just a matter of luck, you know, whether you're this on this or that side of the border and how that then um, sets all of your life expectations, you know, that has to be an international project of exactly the kind that's frustrated um, and, and, and cast into suspicion, right, by borders. So I think this is, you know, one of the 
the ways in which uh, the, uh, the, the, the the dangers and the perils that the border um, places uh, are not just uh, perils that are faced by those who are outside the border, especially outside the borders of wealthy countries, um, but that face us as a as a, as a as a you know as a species right that really go to the question of whether we're going to have a world that uh, promotes human survival and flourishing or does not that's wonderful i really thank all three of you for that uh, i'm going to move to the discussion coming in from the chat but first i want to thank our partners at haymarket books they have agreed that we'll stay on for another 20 minutes or so given some of the earlier technical glitches and given that this is their working lives and days that they're looking at uh, i want to say on behalf of specter journal that we really appreciate their generous support keep in mind of course everybody out there that this being Black History Month that Haymarket has a major sale uh, of titles on the Black freedom struggle. So do check that out. And I'm really impressed in the discussion that we're having because Spectre has said as one of its projects trying to bring together Marxist and abolitionist traditions. And abolitionism, as you know, has made a huge contribution with respect to prison abolition and police abolition. One of the things we're hearing as well in this discussion today is that the full abolitionist project has also got to be about the abolition of borders. And we're excited to be able to host and sponsor this uh, sort of discussion. For those of you who don't have your subscriptions or familiarity with Spectre Journal yet, please go to specterjournal.com uh, and you'll see all the latest output there. And watch your social media feed because journals need support. And on Valentine's Day, we'll be launching a Show Spectre Some Love uh, fundra fundraising campaign and hope that you will all share it, promote it, contribute to it, and so on. Now, in the chat, there's a theme that's running through a few comments, and I'm going to spin one question to each of you uh, as your specific question. But I want to give you the kind of theme that's running through, uh, particularly Rachel and Rita. Thank you for these contributions. But they're both really asking about what does no borders look like in a kind of practical, hands-on, political way? In other words, when they're trying to translate this into conversations that they're having with people who are coming back and saying, well, this all sounds wonderful in principle, but it's pie in the sky and there's no way of operationalizing this and and so on. And I think it does relate to a number of the, the questions that uh, have come up. And so I'm going to give out the questions first to Nandita, then to Vanessa, and then to Justin, uh, but asking you to sort of keep in mind that framing of how we're addressing politics on the ground 
around some of these things. Uh, Nandita Alina has a question that she specifically has for you, which is how can No Borders movements work with indigenous movements, uh, particularly given that in some contexts they're defining themselves as, say, First Nation struggles and this sort of thing? In what kind of solidarity can those can those movements develop? Did you want me to answer that please, specific please. question right now? Please. Okay. Um, so I think that Indigenous movements today are part of, you know, the larger historical anti-colonial movements, right? Um, and I think that one of the important things that um, we have learned over the past, you know, century or so where, you know, starting in the Americas, um, certain, you know, certain um, places were able to get their independence from empires, establish their own independent states, et cetera. And then, you know, certainly after World War II, where, you know, basically the whole kind of, you know, the imperial system largely, not fully, but largely crumbled, right? And we got this world of nation states, right? Both in the former colonies as well as in the former metropoles, right? So France, you know, shrunk and became a nation state, you know, Britain shrunk and became a nation state, et cetera, et cetera. Um, and I think that when we think of indigenous struggles along, you know, as part of this global planetary anti-colonial struggle, then there are important lessons to be learned, right? And one of those lessons is that, first of all, each and every new nation state enacted citizenship and immigration controls, right? Whether they were in the rich world or the poor world, right? And that is, and they were all very serious about that. Um, secondly, each and every so-called, you know, now, you know, uh, national, nationally independent state, you know, with their national sovereignty and their national self-determination, squashed the workers with inside those states, every single one of them, right? Yes, of course, some of the nation states were more powerful than others. Obviously, the United States, many of the European states retained the power that they had inherited through their empires um, and, you know, use that to squash people around the world. But it should also be pointed out because this is this is about most people on the planet those nationally independent states, especially the national liberation states, also squashed people, right? Con collaborated with capital to bring capital into people's lives, to take away their means of subsistence, to expropriate their land and turn it into hydroelectric dams, you know, et cetera, it's industrial agriculture, et cetera, et cetera. So when I think of contemporary movements for national sovereignty, right, and national liberation, I can't help but think that this is a very dangerous path to go down to. This is not a path that has led to liberation for, you know, for other people who have so supposedly succeeded at it, right? Um, so to me, national sovereignty movements, movements for national self-determination are actually very successful at containing people's demands for an end to colonialism. So what I would say a no borders movement has to offer to indigenous struggles, right, for for the same thing that all struggles for freedom are, are fighting for is, you know, be very, very wary 
and uh, beware of the dangers of national sovereignty because it does not mean decolonization and it does not mean liberation. Right. So how can we work together for a different vision of decolonization, one that is about ending class and state rule and ending the idea that only certain people belong in a particular place on and that belonging in a particular place is the basis for political power. How do we challenge that so that we actually have a world in common? Vanessa, one of the questions that has come up in the chat concerns what no borders commitments mean and how they are practiced at a in a, the midst of a pandemic where states are you know really trying to regulate human movement uh, and so on. So in this context, how would you advise people to sort of take up? the the no borders perspective? Well, I, I think one thing that's clearly demonstrated is certainly the limitations, right, of um, of contemporary uh, nation states to respond to to the pandemic in a, a sensible or rational way. Um, I mean, I, I assume that the question uh, uh, is 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 sort of presupposing that um, in order to control the pandemic, uh, we need to contain people somehow, right? Um, and it is true that we need a, a rational public health guided approach uh, to thinking about how people are exposed to danger, right, and exposed to um, the uh, the the COVID uh, the virus that causes COVID nineteen. Um, I think that you know the main lesson to draw right now is is is, is the real failures um, of of these nation states to um, to to approach the pandemic in a in a rational way, and to imagine what it might look like um, if we had an approach that was governed by the needs of regular working human beings around the world in these countries, right? That was guided uh, by concerns about how do we keep populations actually safe, right? Um, we might, you know, that might still be a policy that acts for limitations on movement, but it would be a policy that was uh, implemented in a in a truly democratic manner, uh, where people who are uh, most affected by the danger are also the ones who are working together collaboratively to create a response. Um, a a the, the kind of top-down approach to managing movement in the face of a high transmissible disease is not the only shape that that kind of public health measure could take. Um, and I think that, uh, you know, things would look very different um, if we had a global public health policy that was created on the basis of a, a truly democratic, collaborative, internationalist approach to um, to helping humanity, right? So if we think, so, this, so it's in more specific terms, you know, if we if we think um, 
to the uh, United States relationship to China, for example, which was just purely um, antagonistic, xenophobic, uh, racist, you know, everything bad and um, everything irresponsible, right, that you could imagine, uh, characterized the way that the United States responded. We didn't have a response that was uh, grounded in mutual support and aid, right, and and thinking through how to respond to a population, um, uh, you know, in another part of the globe that was suffering, right? Um, and so we, ha- so there's those very kind of, um, you know, concrete examples. But I think also, you know, when we think about the the way that, um, the, you know, here in the United States, certainly that people thought about the pandemic, or actually when it when the pandemic began, I was actually in Germany, right? And I, um, and then I returned to the United States. So I had the experience of being in two different countries at the, you know, when the pandemic first began to emerge uh, in China. Um, And, you know, in both of those spaces, I think there was a real sense of like, well, that's very far away, you know, for happening to some people that are over there. Um, And and partially, you know, the way that borders and nations colonize our mental, uh, you know, kind of imagination in terms of understanding what is the nature of the globe, what is the nature of relationships among human beings, you know, that 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 is more ephemeral, right, than my first comment about the actual concrete kind of interaction between people, you know, but that also, I think, conditioned a lot of the sense of, you know, American exceptionalism around the pandemic and the idea that even as we saw it rage across Italy, uh, you know, when it was obviously clear that we were next, right? I don't think that was really part of how folks in the United States understood it. Um, so, yeah, I mean, I, I, I get the uh, I, I see the puzzle, right, or I see the problem being raised by the question. And I think that the, the way to, um, to 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 come up with a, you know, a good answer to this question is to really look at what we failed to do precisely because of the way that we we think about borders and the way that borders condition our um, uh, relationship to the, the people that are on the other side of those borders. Great. Thank you. Justin, a, a couple of questions have come in around unions and how they have uh, responded to the deportation system and the clampdown on migrants and mobility, but also related to that, uh, at least one or two people have asked if you could share some examples of effective cross-border organizing. Yeah, great question. So, um, well, I mean, in general, when we talk about the role of unions in the United States, it's been a very, in terms of supporting, um, you know, uh, immigrants, including them in their ranks and defending, um, you know, migrant uh, peoples from deportation. It's a fairly short history, um, you know, that really um, is uh, ephemeral um, and, and starting in the, in the 80s when we had some unions beginning to break away from the larger anti-immigrant sentiment of the U.S. labor movement, uh, U.S. union movement. And begin to organize immigrants. Consequently, the, the fastest growing uh, unions in the country have been those that have opened their doors to, to immigrants. And then the AFL-CIO as a whole generally took um, anti-immigrant positions and still does to some degree, um, but formally, um, but formally dropped its 
anti-immigrant rhetoric in the late 1990s um, and between uh, 2000 and 2003 actively organized um, or actively supported the organization of uh, immigrant rights uh, sort of groups within the AFL-CIO to push for a new legalization. That was derailed um, by the three organized labor um, to, uh, still formally um, supports, um, you know, the uh, AFL-CIO formally supports the incorporation of immigrants, but has done very little, but has backed away from that process. And under Trump became um, very ambiguous, at least the leadership of the AFL-CIO became very ambiguous in terms of what role AFL-CIO had to play in terms of uh, immigration. And so it's been a it's been a very unfortunate past and very, very limited in scope in terms of the actual support. But what has happened within organized labor is that workers in the unions themselves, especially on regional uh, level and local level, have used the resources of their locals to push for organizing at key points, whether it be for the amnesty in 1986 uh for the, like I mentioned, the revived movement in 2000 and 2003, and in 2006, the organization of mass, basically mass walkouts, mass strikes, mass marches and, and boycotts in 2006 to, to oppose the Simpson-Brenner King Bill, uh, which would have criminalized, which would have made it a felony to be an undocumented immigrant uh, migrant in the United States. But the more, more recently we've seen and there's there's more history in terms of transnational organizing um, and efforts to build cross-border unions. Now more than ever, it makes more it makes um, it, the the possibilities are presenting themselves, especially as we have transnational capital basically uh, subdividing industries through supply chains across borders. So, for instance, um, in 2019, we had. Uh, a General Motors strike in the United States. Well, General Motors produces its cars through a combination of supply chains that link um, car production from Mexico to Canada, right? And so we have these production facilities, whether they're parts or chassis or you know different different sections uh, of a car being produced across borders. Uh, and so basically, workers are 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 aligned by transnational capital to basically be working for the same employer producing the same cars. And when there was a strike in 2019, the last United Auto Workers strike um, at General Motors, what, what happened was um, you had the, first of all, the question of whether um, General Motors was going to continue to invest in its production facilities in the United States or whether it was going to outsource or, or ship production to other parts of, of the world, including Mexico saying that it couldn't afford labor costs here. Um, there's more to the strike, but what ended up happening is workers in the U.S. went on strike. It it dis uh, and then it solidarity campaigns in Canada uh, and the, the supply chains became disrupted. The the solidarity campaigns developed, and this degree this supply chains just became disrupted in Mexico, where. Um, you have nearly half of all auto workers in North America now because of um, the movement of production in Mexico. Workers don't have real unions there. They have fake company-run unions that often work in alignment with the companies. So, so General Motors knows full well why they're moving, why they've moved so much production to Mexico because they can rely on these fake companies, uh, fake unions, excuse me, to suppress actual labor organizing. But that hasn't stopped efforts on the ground. 
And during the strike at one General Motors plant in Silao, Guanajuato, a very large plant, the workers organized themselves independently of the, of the company union and basically called on uh, workers in the United States and Canada to stand with them in solidarity as they went on a strike. They're not part of the, of, of the overall United Auto Workers strike, even though they weren't technically part of the union. But they called for solidarity and support because they needed it uh, in terms of the resources of the United Auto Workers to, to defend them from getting fired and, and to, to basically unify uh, the demands across the border. Because as you can imagine, wages are much lower in Mexico because of the border, because of the, the absence of unions, and because of the repression of actual labor organizing. Well, the United Auto Workers ended up walking back from any kind of authentic support. Um, but what it did was it raised the not just the possibility, but the necessity to actually conduct an actual strike in North America across the border. Because, because if you could shut down production on all three sides, you disrupt all the supply chains, the production chains, the company can't produce one single car. But as long as they can, can keep the workers segmented and you know, uh, without unions, they can, they can move more production to Mexico and they can even lower wages further by lowering the threshold. The Mexican workers understood this at the Salau plant. Unfortunately, the UAW leadership didn't, but it, but it was a very important lesson for the average rank and file worker to understand because they ended up losing a lot in the, in, the, in the outcome of that strike. They ended up walking away from a lot of important gains that they had made in the past in terms of the, of the negotiated contract. The same thing has happened in agriculture where we see migrant workers, and I'll finish with this, along the Pacific Corridor, there's been strikes in Washington against... Uh, companies that basically provide berries for a multinational called Driscoll's. There's, that was, in, th in 2013, that's led to um, independent union organizing across Washington state. Most recently, those same unions supported the apple packers who went on strike during the pandemic and one, uh, you, you know, have been winning union recognition in the historic ununionized uh, part of the agricultural industry up there. And in 2015, there was a strike of Berry workers in Baja California, the largest strike possibly in agricultural history, up to 20 to 30,000 workers on strike, shut down total berry production, you know, uh, for all of Mexico, much of North, North America and parts internationally because the Just Coles Corporation distributes these berries internationally. These are the same workers. I mean, essentially, they're part of a, of a migration of workers from South Mexico um, and Central America that come up through Mexico, follow the um, you know, the sort of harvest all the way up to Washington state. Um, many are indigenous and in, and in Baja California, many were deported workers, you know, who had gone back to Baja California and essentially, uh, you know, were part of organizing the strike in 2015. So there's been these ongoing strikes across borders, um, not ongoing, but there's been key strikes across borders that have shown the, the potential for building universal, you know, sort of solidarity across borders, and and importantly, having common demands because the the border functions to keep wages, right? To essentially keep these divides that lower the whole threshold for for workers across borders um, because of you know the movement of production across across those zones. You know, if if there could be a, a the development of organizational capacity with class consciousness within within the union movement that can understand that if we have common demands across borders, that will raise all workers' wages, right? And, and this, is, uh, this is something that isn't just an abstraction. It's something that is absolutely necessary for the union movement in the United States to actually advance.
Um, and because it ha because these lessons haven't been learned and implemented on on the scale necessary, that's why we continue to see uh, the crisis that we're in in terms of you know the declining wages, borders, criminalization of migration, um, and the and the decline of unions as a whole. So these two things are you know the sort of the, the transnationalization of the struggle, the internationalization of the struggle, and the, and the growth of the of a of a new and vital union movement in this country are intricately uh, uh, interconnected and cannot be separated. Thank you, Justin. And that's perhaps the exact note we want to end on the idea of transnationalization of working class oppressed and oppressed struggles. Uh, on behalf of Spectre Journal, I want to thank all of you who tuned in. Keep in mind that Haymarket will be posting the YouTube link. Uh, so let's share this and spread this on social media for those who couldn't be with us live today. There will be lots of opportunity to continue to uh, expose people to this really terrific conversation. You should see the pages of notes I've taken. And uh, frankly, I could have continued this conversation for quite some time. So uh, as I say, on behalf of Spectre Journal, thank you. Thank you to Ashley, our editor and production manager, who was uh, keeping Keeping the chat flowing and the questions running uh, to to me. Thanks to Mandy and John from Haymarket who kept all the technological side, including when we ran into glitches, up and running. It's uh, it, it, it's a coordinated effort, and we really thank our friends at Haymarket. Keep in mind their Black History Month sale that I mentioned earlier. Keep in mind Spectre's upcoming fundraising campaign. Please think about Valentine's Day as an opportunity to show Spectre some love. And let me again thank our three panelists, Justin Aker, Shakon, thank you, Justin, Nandita Sharma, thank you so much, and Vanessa Wills. Thanks to all three of you. Uh, be safe and be well, everybody, and let's keep up the struggle for global justice. Thanks for listening. If you liked this episode, subscribe to our podcast, and to the Haymarket Books YouTube channel, where events like this one are hosted live. And don't forget to check out haymarketbooks.org.